Amen. Thanks, Austin. Morning, everybody. My name is Jeremy. I'm a pastor in the network around here. And uh, particularly before I get going, I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. We've been worshiping here for uh, about the last two and a half, three months. Uh, And I'll just tell you, it has been a refreshment to our souls. Uh, You have been uh, gracious and loving and receptive um, from our community group uh, to standing up here before you. This this really has been a rejuvenation uh, for us. And we've been around a lot of churches. There's something special. There's something special here. The Spirit's doing something. He's doing good work. So I just wanted to acknowledge that before you uh, and to praise God for that and also to say thank you to you. My first mission trip that I ever took, uh, I had become a Christian just a few years before that and in college. Right after college, this church in Atlanta took a chance on me and, uh, and gave me an opportunity to be involved in their student ministry. While I was there, they were sending out trips all the time, and one particular partnership they had was with India. You may have heard Drew stand up here and tell stories uh, about his time in India, and it really is, it's a shocking place. And one of the things that was most shocking was, I remember we were walking down one of the streets, it was the second day we had been there, it was dusk, and I noticed something odd that I had never noticed before. And there, as we were walking down these streets with these ramshackle uh, buildings all around and people crammed in, going back and forth quickly as they could be, there were these little bitty shrines along the side of the road. And on each one of these shrines, kind of propped up on either like a milk crate or maybe uh, some wood that was uh, taken from a pallet or whatever that was, was propped up this little bitty figurine made of metal, usually, cast metal. And it was sitting there on top of that pallet wood stool. And there were, it was adorned with purple and pink flowers all around it. And there were these little bitty votive candles that were sitting right there. And as I looked into the faces of those little figurines, they shimmered with the light of the votive candles. I had now witnessed idolatry. Up until that time, I had never witnessed idolatry before. It was the kind of thing that was so shocking to my senses that it, it kind of threw me for a loop and it took me a couple of days to f- get my bearings again. A few days later, uh, we were at a church and I was sitting in the front row on that side and I just got the sense, I couldn't understand what the pastor was saying because he was speaking uh, in Hindi or some other Indian dialect. And, but what I began to, to pick up on was that I think they're, gonna, they're about to motion to us to say something. It was only myself and one other leader on that trip, and she did not like to speak in public. And so very quickly, I began to spin and think, okay, I think I'm going to have to say something now. What in the world do I say to this church in India that I've never been to, that I don't know any of these people? What in the world am I going to, and I'd been a Christian for like a minute. So what in the world am I going to say to these people? And then I was flipping through my Bible, and I came to these words. Exodus 20. You heard them earlier. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I felt so good about myself. Man, I had just pointed out all the idolatry and all of these people. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I can't believe you people. And I, I didn't say that out loud, but that was the tone of my heart. And what began was this diatribe about how Jesus is the true and better. He is the only God. He is the only invisible, immortal God who has come in flesh, who you can and, excuse me, who you can and should worship. And then feeling good about myself, I sat back in my seat and thought, well, I think, I don't know much about the Holy Spirit, but I think he may have just done something there. The pastor comes up to me after and he um, shakes my hand and says, hey, thanks. And, you know, I appreciate you saying what you said there. And then he very quietly sort of leaned in and said, but we don't normally talk about idols around here. We don't, we don't want to offend. And I thought, well, I just stepped in that one. But, I, I mean, I guess maybe the spirit wanted that to happen that day. Then I got back on my plane. I powered on my phone. And I sat in my car when I got home looking at the green grass around me that I hadn't seen in 14 days and I flicked on the AC on high and I worshipped the God of all comfort. You see what just happened? I spent all that time so focused in this poor people on the other side of the world that were so backwards. And then it took me five minutes once I got home to do the exact same thing. D.L. Moody says it this way. You don't have to go to the heathen lands today to find false gods. America's full of them. Whatever you love more than God, that's your idol. And as an American evangelist, he was looking onto the American landscape and saying, you guys have it all wrong. You think all the craziness is happening over there? All those pastors are looking at America going, poor you. You're so blind. And you just don't see it. And so today we're jumping back into this series in Isaiah that we've been in for a good while now. And if you remember back in chapter 40, a few weeks ago, we crested a hill. And the tone and the language began to shift. <clears throat> Excuse me. Isaiah 1 through 39 is very focused on this messianic king who would come to rule and reign over all things. And then there's a tune that begins to shift when you get to chapter 40. And this idea of a suffering servant who would come to live and come to die out of love for his wayward people. And that's where we find ourselves today in, in yet another place to talk about idolatry. Now, I know we just, if you were here two weeks ago, we just talked about idols two weeks ago. You may remember the story from when Martin Luther was asked uh, by his congregation, why do you preach the same simple gospel message every week, pastor? And he said, because you guys keep forgetting. And so I, I don't know, this was God's doing, not mine. I didn't pick the passage. But maybe God has something else he still wants to root out of your life that maybe that sermon two weeks ago just didn't quite do. 
I'm sure Drew did a great job with it. He did. Uh, But maybe the Spirit has something new that he wants to do in your heart this morning. So let's read this passage together, uh, and then we'll take it in the two points that you find in your outline. So Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it and hammers it and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the fire. Over that half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and he falls down to it, and he worships it. He prays to it, and he says, deliver me, for you are my God. Jump to verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that you would take your word and it would do its work by the power of your spirit in our hearts, mine being the first. Through these words, would you convict just how silly we are? In all these ways that we try to run to these earthly things, when you say, come to me, weary, heavy laden, and you'll find rest. So would we find rest together as we search your scriptures this morning? We pray in Christ. Amen. So if maybe a way to think about it would be two weeks ago when Drew preached on idolatry, Consider that as more the dynamics of idolatry. What is it? How does it work in your heart? What is the, out, the overflow and the outcome of that? This is more like the anatomy of an idol. We're beginning to, to actually pick them up and look at them from all sides and go, what is this that we worship? Why are we worshiping it? And how do we put that down? Because God is so much better. That's where we're going. So we're going to look at it in two points. Like I said, you can see that in your outline uh, as we go through that together. The first is the shame of the idol former. And the second is the hope of the God formed. So verse 9, 
Isaiah jumps right into the main point. He says, all who fashion idols are nothing. He doesn't mince words even a little bit. And the things they delight in do not profit. Do not profit. That's like investing in blockbuster video. That stock would not reap you much of a profit these days. By the way, in case you were wondering, there is one blockbuster video left. It's in Ohio. You can make a pilgrimage there and remember your days growing up in the mid-90s. I can still remember the smell of that place. Uh, okay, so there's, there's two reasons in the passage that idols don't work. And they're very plain, and they're very on the surface like, well, duh. But when you begin to look deeper, you realize that you're doing the stuff that's well, duh. And yet we continue to do it. So first reason the idols don't work, verse 12. The ironsmith makes a cutting tool, and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers, and he works it with his strong arm. This is talking about the craftsman who's making the idol. But then he gets hungry. His breakfast wears off, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So what is this saying? The reason that idols cannot do anything for you, the reason that they should not be worshipped as things that are like God is because they were made by a guy named Bubba in his garage while he sweat on them. You see how silly that is? How, what that image really brings up, but it's true. That's what it's saying. A craftsman made these things. So these, these things that we worship, and I'll, I'll apply this to us here in a minute, but just go with me for a second. These things that we worship are made by either our hands or somebody else's. They are not God because they don't come from him. They are not God because they are not made by him. They were not pre-existent before the foundation of the world. They had a beginning the cypress tree that grew up, and they have an end when it burns up in the fire. They are not God. How can something that was made by the power of man have power over man? So let's consider this in our day and time. How, how do we see the idle craftsmen? Who are they, the idle craftsmen of today? Let's consider three. First, Jeff Bezos. Uh, he creates Amazon, the shopping platform where your wish is its command, right? There's this neat little thing that you pay like 10 bucks a month for, and you can literally, in the coming weeks or months or years, definitely, you're going to have a little drone that's going to be able to fly it to you in like three minutes from the time that you hit order. I, about a week ago, I needed to order something for a house project I was doing. I needed a paint sprayer. And so I got on my phone. I found the paint sprayer, I hit buy now, and then the next day, right after, that was Saturday evening, Sunday, I get home from church and there's a box right there. And then I stopped and I looked at that box and I worshiped the God of instant gratification. Oh, so good. Elon Musk, creating SpaceX manned spacecraft to eventually reach and populate Mars. What a crazy vision. He says by 2026, he wants to have someone on Mars, a manned mission that will land on Mars and then cultivate that new land for humanity. And we watch 
We go to Cape Canaveral and we watch those SpaceX rockets go up in the air and we worship the God of infinite reach. Maybe one more. Steve Jobs. January 9th, 2007, he unveils this thing. And he calls it a revolutionary and a magical device. At least five years ahead of its time from any other cell phone. And with that phone, you and I, in a millisecond, can have access to all and any information that only is one Google search away or maybe a Hey Siri. And we look at that and we use it every day and we worship. We worship this God of unlimited information. Now here's the punchline to apply this to the passage. Literally, you realize Bezos Musk, Jobs. Most of these guys literally started their companies, these are the origin stories we hear, in their garages as they sweated over these things that now are these multi-million dollar companies and platforms. And we look at them and we shape our lives around them and they shape us in all kinds of ways that we're not even recognizing is happening as we use these things that seem so benign but can have such a negative impact on us. In fact, did you know that Bill Gates did not allow his children to have a cell phone until they were 14 years old? Because he knew. He knew that the thing he had created had great power to destruct and to deform humanity. Same thing could be said of Steve Jobs who never let his kids have the iPad as much as they begged. Right? Because these guys made these things with their own hands, with the sweat of their brow in the garage. They may look fancy now, but they are man-made. They are human-formed. And then we, the other argument the passage makes is then eventually those guys get tired and break down. And so what do we see? Bezos just blew up his marriage. Uh, Elon Musk is just a total nut job. And uh, Steve Jobs is dead. How's it going for them? then how could we think that the things that they had made would have some miraculous power to save us, that we would look at them and say, deliver me. And yet every child who is somewhere around the age of 11 and desires a cell phone, their heart's cry is, deliver me. And every one of us who go home and pull up Instagram, there is something inside of us that says, deliver me. It'll just, that next picture, that'll be it. Then I'll feel okay. Okay, I think you got the picture of them. Second reason that idols don't work. They are made of earthly stuff. So if, if the previous point was what they are made, who they are made by, this is what they are made from. Verse 16 and 17. Half of it he burns over the fire. He eats meat, roasts it, and is satisfied. This can be a plug for the barbecue competition in a couple weeks. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Right? So he's talking about an idol that is made out of a man-made substance. It grew up out of the ground and then it was created. Right? Idols are not the substance of God as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four says, God who is infinite 
eternal, unchangeable in his being, knowledge, wisdom, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. That's who God is. And yet we look at these things that we wish, which they're just a little bit easier to approach than he is. They're, they're a little bit easier to get them to do what we want them to do than he is. I want you to consider one more idol craftsman, your very own heart. You may have heard the John Calvin quote. I think it may have been said here a couple of weeks ago. It's great at it. It does it all day. Actually, Calvin, the same Calvin who made that comment, also made the comment that it's not only the sins that you like actively do that are sinful, it's even just the things that just naturally come out of you that are against his will and his law that you can't even control. That's how good we are at forming other gods than him. And so just a couple by way of example. We can form an idol at anything. But the point is, eventually it will fail us. Eventually it will burn out. And so you make an idol of your kids and you want everything to go perfectly in their life and you want everything to be easy and for them to always be successful and everything to always be totally righteous and upright, these upstanding citizens who never have a problem in the world and then they're born. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long to recognize these things that I could, and many of us do, naturally, we build our lives around them, and yet they're not made to hold that weight, and we end up destructing them, deforming them, and destructing our own selves the more emphasis and effort we put on them to make us happy. You can form an idol out of your image, right? Whether it's your makeup or your workout routine or your vitamin supplements from GNC, or whatever that is. But the truth is, wrinkles come for us all. Right? There is, there is an end date. We are all perishable. And so we hold on to this image that we can look in the mirror and feel good about, but eventually 10, 20, 80 years go by. And that image is not what it once was. It just fades so quick. Or, here's one for the kids. Kids. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Kids, why is it that you feel disappointed a lot inside? What, when you're a kid, what do you love? Fun. Man, if everything could just be fun all the time, then life would be great. Why do you find yourself disappointed so much? Because life's not always fun. Right? There are... There are other things that fill our lives, like homework. Any of these things that we can prop up as the thing, our thing, this is who I am, this is what I do, anything other than who I am being a child of the king will fall by the wayside. It'll burn up, it'll flame out, it'll disappoint, it'll deform your heart, and it'll destruct your life. That's what idols do. And yet we continue to look at these things and we, we look to them to deliver us. Please, will you just, will you just deliver us? How do you know 
what an idol might be for you because I can't give all the examples. So maybe this would be a better way to diagnose uh, for you today as you sit there, assuming the spirit still has something to root out of you because he hasn't come back and you haven't gone to be with him yet. He still has new ways that he wants to conform you to the image of his son, his dearly beloved Jesus today. So what might be a way to get a little deeper in your own heart? Look at verse 11, the second half. Talking about those who make idols and those who worship idols, they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And so as you stand back from your life for a moment, you have this period of time where you just get to sit here and sort of reflect on the week that's already been and reflect on the week that's to come. Consider that question. Where am I... Where is my heart fearful right now? Where do I find dissonance inside? Where, where, when I'm there, I just feel naturally anxious and unsettled? What, when I think about, just leaves me needing to run back to Jesus as quickly as I can because it makes me shake in my boots? Where do you feel terrified? Or where do you feel ashamed? What parts of your life do you feel like hiding? What do you wish nobody knew about you? What if it were to be found out about you, or maybe it's been found out about you and your life is crumbling and your internal self is crumbling? You might be worshiping something other than God because he calls you to walk into the light as he is in the light, to be totally known and open to him and those around you. To need no hiding and to need no fear. That has been a theme that has been pounded the past few weeks. Do not fear. How can God say that? Verse 21. Because remember, we're on to the second point now. The hope of the God formed. Verse 21, remember. Right, going back to that Martin Luther thing. I know you forgot. God is great. Because he continues to tell us things over and over and over again. And so he just told us this, and now he's telling us again, remember, I formed you. You are my servant. We are not alone in the world to make our own way, to form our own identity, to make our own value and make our impact in the world and our legacy forever. We're his. Whether you know it or not, you're his. He made you, he formed you, even in your mother's womb. And every step that you take in this life, every day that you live, he says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground or a hair falls from your head that I do not know about. That's who God is. He is worthy. He is worthy to be worshiped. Great choice on that song. You, you may have heard this other often used quote as we talk about idolatry that Augustine says, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in you. Normally, we talk about that when we're focusing on why our hearts are restless. I want to focus on the second part, until they find their rest in you. How do we today, this morning, where we sit in our seats and as we go back to our homes, 
How can our souls be at rest today? The scriptures tell us. This goes back all the way. Let's just consider the book of Isaiah. Do you remember when we first started this series back in Isaiah 6? You remember him? You remember the first time that Isaiah has this vision? That there's impending doom all around him, and yet he has this vision of God. Holy, holy, holy is he. High and lifted up, majestic and glorious, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. That's the God who is. We look to all these other things for omnipresence, right? If I can just be, I can do enough stuff, it'll be kind of like I'm in two places at once. It's not possible. Omnipotence. If I can just, just get my guns big enough, then I can have the power that it takes to get through this life. Or if I can just look good enough, then I can control my life and my work and all that happens to me. And you can't. He is omnipotent. And we can continue on and on down the line. But not only is he the great and glorious God who is high and lifted up, but what also do you see in Isaiah 6? He's near. And he actually, as, as the, the tone shifts and Isaiah is standing there saying, whoa. I didn't, know, I didn't know this was who you were. Woe is me. Hopefully, at this point in the sermon, we've, we're beginning to have a woe is me moment. That there's, there is something in my heart that is so naturally pulled away from God that it just feels like a second home. And if I can just get there, then life will be okay. And God is calling us out of every one of those things to rest in him, for him to be our home and our resting place. And so if that is the God that you come to this morning, if you know him as your God, then as you approach him, you can take a deep sigh and let it out. Because you're not God. You didn't form yourself. He formed you. You are his servant. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And so maybe an image uh, would be that of what we have done with our lives is to grab the world by the throat and put a gun to his head and say, deliver me. Will you do what I want you to do? Will you make me as happy as I feel inside that I should be? Why do we feel those things? Because we have been made to be satisfied in those things. And yet we try to make the world do what only the king of the world can do. And so you may have heard this quote before, but you were invited this morning to put your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and to stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. But how can he complete our lives? We see all these cracks. We see all this brokenness. We see all this mess that we walk in with this morning and all of these other places that we run to instead of the comfort of the Lord. Look at the raw material. How can he do anything good with us? I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the art, the Japanese art of kintsugi. Uh, the idea is that the Japanese are very resourceful. And so if they drop a bowl on the ground, instead of tossing that bowl in the trash and going to Target and buying a new one, or instead of super gluing it back together to just sort of look and function about like it did before, there is an art form that has developed that actually takes those broken pieces 
and, and forms them back and takes this tree sap lacquer in the way it was initially formed and takes all of those joints, just like superglue, and puts them back together, but then takes gold or silver or platinum flake and presses it down on that lacquer while it's still wet and then dusts it off. You ever seen somebody do that with gold plating? And he dusts that off. And then what you're left with is not just a bowl like it used to be, but you're left with this thing that all of those ugly cracks are actually the things that make it the most beautiful. And it's now more beautiful than it was before because it has been broken, but it has been redeemed. God says, I am your redeemer. That's what he means. You're broken on the floor. That's how you come to him. And that's how every honest person, the, the more we continue to wake up every morning and go back to him again, we come as that broken pot on the floor yet again. And yet every morning he picks us back up and he forms us back together and all of those weakest places. An idol just shows you all of the weaknesses that you have that God needs to fill. It shows you all the false places of worship in your lives that God should be infusing instead. And so he doesn't just put you back together, but he infuses those weak places in your life with his glory. Redeemed, made new. That's what he is doing. That's what he has done. And that's what he will fully come to finish when he returns. Because verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Present tense, I have. You are redeemed. Come to me. I already did the work. And so the, the, the vision here that's being let out is that to be blotted out, right? If we're a cracked pot on the ground, we've worshiped everything instead of God, then he should want nothing to do with us. There we are. We broke our lives this is how many of us think about God. Well, we, we blew it up, so we got to fix it. That is not who God is. This is not the Old Testament mean God, and then you get the New Testament nice God. This is just God. And what you see in this passage is this God is one who does not leave you there, but one who sees you in your broken state, dead in your sin, looks at you, and is actually drawn towards you and not away from you. But that brokenness, something has to be done about your idolatry. Something has to be done. It has to go somewhere. If you feel stuck and tied to worshiping something that you just can't get rid of today, there's good news. Because it hasn't just been shrugged off by God. It has been dealt with by Jesus. It has been nailed hands and feet. It has been buried in the grave. It has been resurrected and brought to new life. And as he is, so are we. That broken pot that once was on the ground, you and I dead in our sins, he has chosen to put us back together, fill those cracks with his glory, and call us to live a life becoming of one who is already being made new and is. What other God can do that? What other idol can perform that miracle? Zero. 
That's how many. So here's a, an application as we close. Um, there is a song that actually uh, I first heard sitting right back there a couple of months ago. And it's by Audrey Assad. You can pull it up on Spotify or Apple Music with either Audrey Assad or Worship Initiative. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's called I Shall Not Want. And just to remind you, here's the lyrics from the song. From the love of my own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions, deliver me, O God. From the need to be understood and the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely, deliver me, O God. And I shall not want. No, I shall not want. Here's the key. When I taste your goodness, then I shall not want. Where do you need to taste his goodness? Come taste and see that the Lord is good. This morning, every morning, every afternoon, every evening, come back. He's already redeemed you. Have you trusted in him today? Then he's already begun the work. And he will not stop until he completes it. And so whatever that is, Listen to that song. Rehearse that in your heart. I shall not want. I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. I shall not want approval anymore. I shall not want control over my life. I shall not want this image that I've made in my head that I have to be. I shall not want this perfect life. I shall only want you, my deliverer. Thanks. I didn't have anything else to say after that, but I just got kind of excited about that last little part. Um, guys, thank you for uh, reminding me of that song. And uh, I pray that that could be a helpful way to tangibly rehearse the great gospel and worship the great God who is. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Before we even ask you for anything, we just want to stop and rest. You don't wait for us to do the good work and then you move towards us, but you have done the good work. You have paid our ransom. You have taken our broken lives and you have mended them and are mending them and will mend them back together. We need you. We rest in you. And we stand gloriously new before you. So would we worship with that kind of vigor, with that kind of knowledge, with that kind of love, knowing that you are our God. And that even, even the act of worship now in this service and in this last song that we sing, would this act of worship begin, would the, would the shackles fall off a little bit more from the things that just have a grip on our heart that we can't even, we can't even get in there and unloosen them ourselves? Spirit, do your good work. Unloosen the chains that bind us that we could walk fully and wholly and gloriously in the light of your face and yours alone. 
And we pray in your name. Amen. It's been said that you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Maybe some of you come in this morning and Jesus is all you got. Praise the Lord. Maybe you come in and life's going great. Praise the Lord. But whether you have plenty or whether you have want, blessed be his name. And so let's bless his name as he blesses us and sends us back out into this world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. You may go in peace.